I'm sure you've heard the term soul searching. It's that in-depth examination of yourself and what drives you. But what exactly is source searching? Similar to soul searching, it is an in-depth examination, but not of oneself, of the patient. And it often gives the answer to what might be driving the infective process. You may have recently heard your friendly local microbiologist, the infectious diseases specialist, or the intensivist asking, have you found the source of the infection? Or where do you think the source is? Feeling a little confused and overwhelmed when you hear these words? Well, then this is the episode for you. Let's go ahead and open up Source Searching 101. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chipabai. My guest today is Professor Guy Richards. Professor Richards is an Emeritus Professor of Critical Care at the University of the Witwatersrand. Hi, Prof. Thank you for joining me for this episode, and welcome to Microbe Mail. Hi, Vin. A pleasure. Nice to be here with you. Before we start today's expedition, remember, if you sign up to receive our newsletter on the Microbe Mail website, you'll receive an email when a new episode is released. You can also follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. If you think someone else might like Microbe Mail, please forward our details and also go to podchaser.com and leave us a review. You will find Microbe Mail wherever you listen to podcasts or directly on our website. All of the links to our sites and pages are available in the show notes. Okay, let's drive straight in. First things first, Prof, what do we mean when we ask what is the source of the infection? Well, obviously that's an extremely important question because very often people will treat an organism without actually knowing where that organism comes from. So I get told, for example, that when I ask the patient or the doctor, what is the diagnosis? They say, no, this patient has got a, for example, Klebsiella in the blood. But that isn't a diagnosis because you have to know where that organism is coming from. And if you haven't got the, the diagnosis or the source, then this patient is not going to get better. So it's absolutely critical that we know what the source is so we can direct our therapy to that source. In fact, there are some studies that indicate that source control is more important even than antibiotics. I wouldn't suggest not using antibiotics, but it may even be more important because it really does determine whether the patient is likely to survive or not. Okay, and how is the source then interlinked to managing this patient with an infection? Well, it really depends where the source is. If your patient comes in as an outpatient, in general, when they have an infection, we actually do know the source. So it may well be a pneumonia, or it may be a meningitis, or it may well be in this day and age, it may be COVID, it may be uh, something which is fairly obvious and easy to actually identify. Where it really becomes a difficulty is in the ICU, because there, there number one, it's difficult to know whether the patient actually is infected because there are many other things that can cause an elevation in pro-inflammatory biomarkers like C-reactive protein, uh, et cetera. But we do use then a combination of both CRP and procalcitonin to indicate whether an infection is present. If that infection, if it indicates, if there is an indication that there is an infection, or if microbiology indicates that a culture is positive, then we need to go and search 
by whatever means are available to us as to where the source is. And this is a combination of things like X-ray imaging, CT scans sometimes being performed as well. Uh, sonar may well be performed. Culture from central lines may be performed. Uh, numerous and any techniques would be utilized to actually define where that uh, origin of that sepsis happens to be. So I know you have a very clever mnemonic which helps clinicians remember where to look to find the source of the sepsis. Can you run through this with our listeners? Sure. So I call it E big laws. We added the E a little bit later, but E means endocarditis. So that would often mean that you would then investigate that by means of uh, ultrasonography. And this could either be transesophageal ultrasonography or it could be direct transthoracic ultrasonography. But it is something we must always consider. The B would be bladder, and obviously you would investigate that in terms of evaluating the, uh, the nature of the urine and in terms of cells, et cetera, but most importantly, the culture. Uh, then I would be IV lines, and any IV lines obviously are a source of infection and unfortunately are often placed with insufficient care with regard to sterility of the procedure, uh, et cetera. And there, in terms of the diagnosis, we will be looking at culturing through that line. If you leave it in situ, you, you would culture through the line and you would also culture from a peripheral line. And if, in fact, the culture came up positive at least two hours before that from the peripheral line, it would indicate that that was an infected catheter. The problem from that point of view, of course, is that the infection might be on the outside of the catheter and you don't always pick them up. By that technique. So usually we have to remove them if it's a suspicion and then culture them uh, in a very specific manner as well. The G would be gut. And there we are concerned with uh, things like um, CDI, Clostridioides uh, difficile. Um, and there we would obviously be sending the stool off for a test for both the toxin and for the antigen of uh, the organism itself so we could identify whether it was present and then we would identify whether in fact the toxin was being produced. Um, other organisms patients could come in with would be things like Salmonella and Shigella and uh, Yersinia, uh, et cetera, which all could make people extremely ill. One other that we think about there is Salmonella paratyphi and that is particularly in our patients who are HIV positive, and they often have bacteremic salmonella in relation to their cultures uh, as well. The L would be lung, and there the most important thing would be that there has been a decline in oxygenation that is associated with a new infiltrate on the chest X-ray, and usually also an increase in secretions or that the secretions have become more purulent. Uh, and in that setting, the most important one for us, in fact, is the new infiltrate. This probably is one which is overdiagnosed. So that very often people will, uh, merely because a patient is ventilated, will suspect that if, in fact, biomarkers are rising, that it must be coming from the lung, but it probably isn't from there. And there are many other sites as well. And one of those is the next letter, which is A, which is uh, the, the A of, of laws, uh, 
and that would be abdomen, and that mostly is post-surgical. Uh, and if, in fact, the patient becomes or shows signs of sepsis or inflammation after a surgical procedure, that is the usual site, the usual origin, even though people will often deny that that is likely to be it. It usually is the site and a relook becomes mandatory, not just necessarily a CT scan. Um, it's not always post-surgical, and sometimes patients do develop a calculus cholecystitis, or they may develop even an appendicitis or diverticulitis or something else that is unrelated to the primary reason for the admission to ICU, uh, or even ischemic bowel. And with ischemic bowel, there can be translocation of organisms occurring as well. The W then would be wound sepsis, and that would require evaluation and sometimes removal of some of the sutures to see whether, in fact, there, there is pus uh, in the wound and if there's a, a spreading cellulitis as well. And S would be skin and soft tissue, and there we look at drip site cellulitis, particularly peripheral lines. Often people think that peripheral lines are not dangerous. Uh, and that only the central lines are in fact dangerous, but there are probably more bacteremic events that occur from peripheral lines overall, only because they are placed so much more frequently than central lines, both in the wards and in the ICU um, overall. The other uh, site then would be bed sores, and that's a frequent source of uh, bacteremias in the, uh, in the ICU or in the wards themselves. And the other one, which occasionally is a problem, is sinuses. And that is particularly if one has placed ET tubes into the sinus or into the nose, uh, or you've got feeding tubes in the nose, then there is a risk also for um, infection in the sinuses themselves. And obviously, identification there would be in relation to imaging of the sinuses um, as well. So this is such a quick and easy, but such a comprehensive list um, and I think anyone could easily master um, this list. But once I've mastered what the list contains, how do I, as a clinician, go about in a step-by-step -step manner to search for the source of the infection? Well, I think that certainly in, um, in our ICU, we look every single day for evidence that there might be new sepsis developing. So, as I said, that mnemonic is particularly of value in patients who develop secondary hospital-acquired infections. So, daily C-reactive protein and procalcitonin is an extremely valuable exercise. And even if it does cost some money, it actually saves lives and decreases the use of antibiotics quite significantly as well. So, if you note that a CRP which had settled uh, or a PCT, which had settled or was coming down, now reverses and starts rising, one then needs to look for the source of that sepsis. And then you need to go through that mnemonic, each one and each uh, individually, and then think about how you would exclude those specific uh, features of, uh, or those specific sites that could be where the infection is actually arising. And as I mentioned before, this involves multiple uh, modalities of uh, investigation, including imaging um, and including removal and culture of catheters, et cetera, et cetera. You would need to go through each one of those individually and then be able to chat to the consultant and say, well, okay, I've excluded 
this one or excluded that one or excluded this one, maybe this is the one that we're actually dealing with at the moment. Okay. There is though sometimes a situation where one might have searched quite thoroughly and still not found the source. Prof, what would you recommend in such a situation? Well, first of all, we then have to consider that possibly that this is not an infection. Um, if it is right. a confirmed infection, well, then we need to reevaluate all of the potential sites because it may well require us to actually go further, like, for example, performing a CT scan if we hadn't done that already, uh, looking at both the chest, looking sometimes at bone scans. Staphylococcus, for example, sometimes can give you metastatic infections involving bone, and that may well be a, a site of, uh, of sepsis. Um, we may well need to consider things like uh, lumbar punctures, um, or we may need to go further in terms of our search. But that often is uh, very seldom is actually required that within the EBIG laws are the vast majority of those things that cause infection in the ICU. As I said, if it's not infection, well, then we need to think of other things like autoimmune disease that causes uh, inflammation, although usually with a low uh, PCT or procalcitonin. Um, think of things like pulmonary emboli, which sometimes will cause infarction of the lung and elevate the C-reactive protein. Things like bleeding into the abdomen or post-surgical bleeding will often elevate the C-reactive protein. There are numerous things that are non-infective that may be mimicking the infective process. Right. Um, so would you say there would be any specific recommendations for searching for a source which might be gender-specific? So say, for example, in a gynecology or an obstetric patient? Well, um, certainly that is a, a very critical one. Um, and um, if you've got a patient who has recently delivered, uh, we would always consider the possibility of retained products with infection that may well occur. And endometritis is certainly something that we see reasonably commonly in that group of patients. Um, and... Um, uh, occasionally, we might even see um, inflammatory conditions uh, or primary peritonitis sometimes in young females uh, who have not been pregnant but would be within the, uh, the category of young females or gender-specific infections that you might actually be dealing with there as well. There is also the a rare one, but the so-called perihepatitis that young females may develop that is an infection on the liver, often in relation to organisms penetrating through the fallopian tubes and infecting the underside of the liver, giving you quite severe inflammation and pain on the liver uh, as well. So yes, there are some rare ones that we would need to consider and have a very specific gender-related uh, etiology. That, and that is actually quite very useful to know. And we try on microbe mail not to forget that little people, children, are patients as well. So when searching for a source in a child, would you suggest any specific approach? I think that in children, 
um, viral infections remain the uh, the most common and uh, can mimic all sorts of uh, disease processes. So GIT or intra-abdominal lymphadenopathy can be associated with intersusception and severe abdominal pain. Um, they may actually sometimes have a severe tonsillitis, which manifests with abdominal pain because of swallowing of uh, mucopurulent material, etc. cetera. Um, but many of the others are going to remain exactly the same in terms of the, the likelihood of the etiology of the infection um, as well. And then the last question I have is when searching for a source, what are the recommendations for antimicrobial therapy? So is there ever a time where it might be appropriate to hold off treatment while looking for a source? Well, it always used to be the case that uh, quality control in, the, in hospitals in the United States was often assessed by whether an antibiotic was administered within the first two hours of the identification of sepsis. And do you remember that sepsis now is an infection that has associated organ dysfunction. Septic shock is one stage further where in addition to organ dysfunction, you also have hypotension and you have an elevated lactate uh, and that that has not responded. Those two have not responded to uh, appropriate intravenous fluids. Now, we used to say that you need to give those antibiotics early to all patients with sepsis and septic shock. But there is a lot of emerging evidence at the moment that you've got more time available to you in the patient with sepsis. And it is only in the patient with shock that you need to administer the antibiotic as rapidly as we recommended in the first setting. So it's important Therefore, to spend some time in the patient with sepsis, doing cultures and investigating the patient appropriately, both to find the source and also to identify the organism. Because far too often people administer antibiotics without even doing cultures, and then we end up never knowing what the actual organism is and what the appropriate antibiotic would be as well. So, yes, there is time. And it isn't as urgent unless your patient is shocked. And just to add to that, Prof, um, also there are cases where the antibiotic is administered first and the specimens are collected subsequently. And that also from a microbiology perspective affects the yield of what we might culture from those. Exactly. I, I, that's exactly what I was mentioning is in fact that that you must do those cultures before you give the antibiotics because you're just not going to find positivity if you uh, give the antibiotics first. And unfortunately, it's not first and foremost in many people's minds. Absolutely. So, Prof, before I take ask you for your take-home message, we're going to quickly move to our spotlight feature. And today we are going to play Find the Fake Fungus. So although it's somewhat controversial, it is believed that there are five described species of pneumocystis. And as we all know, they appear to be highly host specific. So I've used a little bit of creative license and I've mixed up some fungal genus and species names and I've created a fake fungus. Oh dear. So Prof, I'm going to give you, <laughs> it's not that terrible. I'm going to give you five options, Prof. 
four of them are true pneumocystis species and one of them is fake. Your job is to guess which one of them is fake. But Prof, the stakes are really high. The surprise for getting this correct is that you actually get a microbe named after you. Oh, my goodness. So you ready to have a go? <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Right. So the first one I have, I'm going to give you all five, and then you can let me know which one is fake. So number one I've got is Pneumocystis perineae. Yep. Number two, Pneumocystis wakefieldii. Yes. Number three, Pneumocystis bisporus. Yes. Number four, Pneumocystis gerovecci. Yes. And number five, Pneumocystis murina. So which one do you think of those is fake? It's, I would say either bisporus or neurina. Um, I would say let's try bisporus. Ah, well done, Prof. That's exactly right. So bisporus is actually a species that comes from a fungus that we commonly eat. And the full name is Agaricus bisporus. And this is the button mushroom, mm. which, remember, is also a fungus. So for com completeness sake, the last true pneumocystis species is pneumocystis orectologi, which infects rabbits. Yeah. Prof, you've done amazingly well. <laughs> Thank you. So from henceforth, you will be fondly known in the microbe male world as Gaella Richardsina. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> so back to our source searching, Prof. Can you give us a quick source searching 101 take-home message or a couple of tips and tricks? Just that it remains absolutely critical in order to ensure a, a, a good outcome that we define and manage the source as early as possible. If we look at intra-abdominal sepsis, for example, there is evidence that if you delay longer than six hours, that your mortality approaches 80 to 100% if you do not get source control rapidly in that period of time. So the longer it takes to get source control, the more likely your patient is to die and that's even if they get appropriate antibiotics administered. So do then think about the mnemonic. Do, as Vin pointed out, think about spe certain specific gender-associated infections as well. And don't forget the viruses, which also can cause quite severe infections, particularly in children. But we're also seeing them now, of course, in adults with regard to COVID, et cetera, uh, and influenza that these are all critical for us to identify in order for your patient to make it. Thanks very much for joining me on today's episode, and we hope you'll be joining us again soon on Microbe Mail. Good. Thanks, Finn. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get your feedback by email, on social media, or on YouTube. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please send us an email at mail.microbe at gmail.com. That's it from me, Vin, your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.